0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. We have never done this before. We have a father-son team today, and they are both entrepreneurs of very, very different ventures. And so the the theme today is about the evolution of a CEO. We have one CEO from a high-tech medical uh, technology company and one from a Web 2.0 hot startup. And I want to give you a little bit of background. John Adler here to my left is a neurosurgeon at Stanford Medical School. Now, for most people, that would be a big enough job. But uh, John realized that there were some huge opportunities, actually some problems that he turned into opportunities, of trying to figure out how to make neurosurgery surgery minimally invasive. And so he founded a company called Accuray that has a product called the CyberKnife. And he'll tell us a little bit about it in a minute. We also then have Trip, his son, who of course grew up in the same household, watched this all happening, and was still willing to go off and start a company as soon as he graduated from Harvard. So he graduated from Harvard in 2006 with a degree in biophysics and then went off to go start the company Scribd, which is, I would say, one of the most exciting startup companies in the Valley and maybe in the world. It has been named by Businessweek as one of the most intriguing startups, and Forbes called it one of the hottest startups. So um, they have millions of documents, tens of millions of visitors, and he's going to tell us a little bit about it. So why don't we start with you, Trip? Why don't you tell us just a little bit of story about Scribd and uh, give us a little bit of context.
1: Sure. Um, well Sure. Uh I guess I'll start by telling you guys just how I got here, because just three years ago I was uh, about the age of most of of you guys, um, because I was a senior at Harvard, and um, at the time I was uh, looking for what I was going to do next after college, and um, most of my friends were getting conventional jobs. Uh, A lot of my friends from Harvard were going into things like investment banking and management consulting, um, and I decided to just uh, experiment for a little bit and try something crazy. I thought I'd start a company. Um, at the time, it felt really, really crazy, and I felt like I was taking a huge risk. Um, I think the only thing that would probably made me willing to do it was, was probably my, my dad's influence. Um, but eventually, I uh, started going down this path. I, I met another guy from Harvard who was a computer science major named Jared, and two of us just started playing with some different website ideas. Uh, eventually, we applied to Y Combinator. Um, I'm sure many of you guys have heard of Y Combinator. Have you guys? Raise your hand if you heard of Y Combinator. Okay, so most people. Um, so we, we applied to Y Cominair, which is this incubator in Boston. Um, they gave us $12,000. We worked on a certain idea there. Um, it was a college classified site that we launched at Harvard. It got moderately successful, but then we realized it wasn't really what we wanted to do. It wasn't going to be the big company, so we scratched that idea. We tried a bunch of other ideas. Finally, we got to Scribd, which was originally inspired by talking to my dad, who had a medical paper that he uh, wanted to publish. And in, in medical publishing, it takes I um, mean, you could say better than I do, but a long time to get published, like a year or two. And he just needed to share this paper with his colleagues. So we decided to build a site that would let him really easily publish his paper, and then we decided to broaden this to all kinds of written material, so books and magazines and school papers and short stories and PowerPoint presentations, any kind of written material. Um, so we built this site. We launched it uh, from an apartment in San Francisco. It basically just... <laughs> took off overnight and became a top 1,500 website in the first two days. Um, at that point, uh, I guess the, this entrepreneur path started to feel a little bit better because venture capitalists started like, stalking us and chasing us down. <laughs> um, so we ended up uh, agreeing to a $3.5 million round from Redpoint. Uh, since then, we raised another $10 million from Charles River Ventures. Uh, we've been doubling in size every six months or so. We're now getting about 50 million users. We have about 35 billion words of text, making us about 10 times the size of Wikipedia in terms of quantity of content. We have about 40 employees off in San Francisco. Um, I guess that's probably enough about me.
0: Pretty cool story. So John, I'm sure starting a med tech company was exactly the same.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it hurts me to hear some of Tripp's story, because my story is so completely different. Um, I started uh, Accurate back in 1991 um, and had uh, venture capitalists running the other direction when I came their way. Um, I was a pariah on Sand Hill Road trying to raise money because everyone thought my company should just die. But after a very difficult, difficult, difficult course, the the company became a reality and became public in, uh, became public three years ago, almost exactly three years ago. And what Accurate does is it makes a very, very precise, non-invasive, robotically controlled, non-invasive surgical tool that lets us destroy tumors now really anywhere in the body. And by virtue of the kind of the principles, we don't just destroy tumor, we can destroy tissue and change the function of tissue anywhere in the body, which gets increasingly interesting not just in cancer, but things like heart surgery and even brain surgery and the psychiatric disorders. So. Um, Accuray very, very, was a very difficult course for me, but nothing was more rewarding than the fact that I could sit here today and tell you that almost 100,000 patients have now been treated with my CyberKnife, and like, right now, at this very given instance, there's probably several dozen patients worldwide are getting treated. And So while my story's been a painful one, it's been a one that I'm very proud of nevertheless.
0: Pretty amazing. So we've got these very different points of view here. And I want to try to ferret out what sort of things are similar and what sort of things are different in these different industries and your different paths. So I, I, let's just trip. What did you learn from being here? You grew up in this house where your father is a neurosurgeon and an entrepreneur. Uh, what did you see in these two different paths? And what was, I mean, I, I'm going to guess that you probably looked at both of those as inspiration for your own career.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think uh, when I was uh, in college, I was probably, didn't even really appreciate either of the paths. I mean, I was just too young to really understand what, what he was actually doing. Too busy partying. Uh, <laughs> one way to look at it. <laughs> um, I, I think I was always much more interested in the entrepreneurial path. And um, I think that just, just seeing my dad uh, go through it gave me the... I guess just the the confidence to actually go for it, because um, I mean, most of the most of my friends at Harvard thought it was just crazy to turn down a job that pays you know hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever you get in investment banking to do something like this. So, uh, but I was I was willing to do it just because I, I had seen it work and I'd seen my dad take on much more risk than I was. I mean, most people think that the idea of, of you know from an Ivy League school of joining a twenty person startup is a very risky idea. And, uh, you know, after seeing my dad, uh, you know, try to raise tens of millions of dollars and, you know, build this very complicated technology and do all this while having a family and a full-time job as a neurosurgeon, you know, it made what we were doing seem really easy and, and risk-free. Um, so just, just seeing that and learning from that was, was really inspiring and, and just made it easier to take that leap into the world of entrepreneurship.
0: Okay, so, John, now your I'm son... I'm feeling comes, Okay, right okay, okay, John, <laughs> <laughs> okay so, so, John, your son calls you and says, okay, I'm gonna go dive in, I'm gonna do this. Were you enthusiastic? And uh, when he decided to do it, what kind of guidance did you give him? I mean, was it something you said, yes, go for it, this is great? Uh, yeah,
2: I was completely enthusiastic. You know, I think uh, we're both products of Silicon Valley, both products of Stanford. And, I mean, I think no place in the world quite understands what entrepreneurism is like we do around here. Um, and to be honest, I was a little worried, I didn't know what else to, he could do. I mean, he's a free spirit, he's a free, I mean, he's very capable, but he wanted, you know, he's got an independent mind. And the nice thing about entrepreneurism, there's no rules, I mean, you make up the rules. And so I was incredibly enthusiastic, and my advice from him was always, even to this day, I have very simple advice, and I said, don't give up the CEO position. I said, you create this business, and if I had learned a lesson over the years, it was just the power vested in the CEO. And, and the opportunity to kind of control the business, influence the business. And so I kind of expected from the early onset that, you know, all the, the wise heads on and, and, and Sand Hill Road who write the big checks, they always want some gray hair or someone with no hair to kind of be making the decisions. But there's nothing like the passion and the energy and, and the understanding that a young, young entrepreneur CEO brings to the table. So I said, don't give it up. And I think that's one lesson that hopefully he's still taking to heart, I hope.
0: So, trip is that useful advice?
2: Yeah, I, I think
1: so. I mean, there's uh, a lot, a lot of young founders. I think that um, that I, I've already seen in my short three-year career uh, give up the CEO position, and I think have it not work out too well. Um, just because you know, when you're when you're building a company in the early days, I mean, it's really all about. And this is the early days, but also when the company's huge, it's about just. Uh, you know, in a technology company, engineering and, and product. And usually the types of CEOs that get hired are, are usually not really specialists in that, they're specialists in everything but that. Um, so it, it just doesn't really make sense to to have somebody who doesn't understand that running the company. Um, and the worst case is if that person like has the wrong uh, opinion on engineering and product. I mean if the guy just sort of steps out of the way and lets the founder or the, the person who knows how to do that do that, that's great. But if if the CEO takes the product engineering in the wrong direction, then that usually destroys the company. And okay,
0: but both of you started these companies without any experience starting companies. So who did you look to for guidance? What, what sort of people did you surround yourself with who you could trust to give you advice about big, big decisions?
2: I think I gave him a little advice. <laughs> I, just, I tried, I tried, okay. I tried. Um, and, the reality, and I tried to give him so much advice because I had no advice. And, and I had very few people to turn to, and in, in, in hindsight, it was a very isolating experience to kind of be in charge of everything, and oftentimes not even having responsibility, but being in charge nonetheless, and, uh, and try to, without experience, kind of make, make, ultimately making decisions. And I mean, it really sounds stupid, but the most important business influence I've had in my life has been Warren Buffett, who I've never met. But who I religiously read his annual reports because there's a guy who really believes that leadership in business is really common sense. It really is, it's common sense. And I feel it's too often it's been surrounded by mumbo jumbo with, you know, organizational charts and, and you know, uh, management by objective and all kinds of logos and spin. And it really you loses the leadership, the essence of the leadership that I think makes for great companies. And I only wish I was as blessed as, you know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin at a young age to have all that power and influence and then have, you know, listen to Warren Buffett on the side telling you how to do all the right things. but. Uh, So I stumbled along and did it by my, learn these things by myself for the most part.
0: Yeah. Were there some? What were the biggest hurdles in the along the way? I mean, what was? Were there places where you really could have used some guidance?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Is there something
0: that sort of sticks out in your mind? I mean, I
2: took, I literally spun my wheels for four or five years trying to raise money, and um, so a lot of it was just bad luck. I mean, the timing of my particular business, and the nature of my business was such that we missed all the right cycles we came at all the just at the wrong side of every cycle um, and uh, we shot ourselves in the foot a couple times too, and so it took me much longer to raise the sort of money I need to than I should have in hindsight and had I maybe the right mentorship and access to the corridors of power early on, that would not have been so difficult.
0: okay, so you had this father who had sort of sort of Paved a path for you in terms of getting some some experience what other i mean first of all i 'm assuming that was really helpful. What other people did you go to for guidance
1: you know, in the in the earliest days it was before the company off the ground it was basically just my dad because i didn 't know anyone uh, but at a certain point you know we, we started getting investors and and pretty much uh, like pretty early on basically everyone who was successful wanted to Meet with me and my co-founders and like try to advise and help us. So so pretty quickly, I I got into the community and was able to get advice from a lot of different people. So that that was probably something that was was much easier for me than my dad. Just I was surrounded by all these people in Silicon Valley who wanted to help. Um, but over time, I think I've actually I've come to listen to other people a lot less. And I've, I've realized that if I'm gonna if you're if you're an entrepreneur and you're really gonna do something amazing, you can't just take direction from other people. You have to basically pave your own path and, and make all your own mistakes. I mean, that's ultimately how you learn, is you just try things and then you succeed or fail and just keep learning through trial, er- trial and error. And at a certain point, um, other people can't teach you much. Um, the only people I really get advice from these days are other successful founder CEOs. Um, you know, I, I talk to people who run companies much bigger than Scribd, and, and ideally people well, people who actually grew the company from, you know, Scribd size to much bigger than Scribd.
2: And, you know, this is kind of, it's kind of after the fact, but um, I developed a, a patient, I encountered a patient two years ago, a guy named Stuart Moldau who um, is really a giant of the retailing industry uh, he started Ross Dress for Less he started Gymboree. I and mean, this is a man who started five or six major companies they brought took public over the course of his career and he was a very sick man in fact he died uh, about almost a year ago and uh but while he while I was caring for him I had lunch with him many times it was amazing to sit down in him with him And instantly, we could communicate instantly, I understood what he was saying, he understood what I was saying. And I'm really, really envious of the fact or sad that I never had when I was developing the company had access to that kind of brains and, and insight. So obviously
0: you don't run these companies by yourself. It's all about a team. How did you attract the right people to you, find the right people, build this team, motivate them? And especially when you've got something brand new that doesn't have any traction, and you know, you're going to get someone to follow your dream, You know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. How did, you, how did you actually make that happen?
1: Yeah, well, as soon as we launched, we had a lot of traction. So it wasn't like there was any trouble attracting people. I mean, we had a long line of people who want to work at the company, and we, we still do. Um, so, I mean, it was really just, common sense. It was like, you know, we needed someone to, you know, manage support. So we just hired someone who came along who was good at it. And, and I think that, uh, I mean, really it's hard. I, I, I'm a believer that you really have to, like, work with someone to really know what it's like, how they're going to perform. Like, interviews never really worked that well. So, I mean, we just had to hire people and move forward and uh, make decisions quickly.
0: So you just have had a line of people just at your door. I mean, how much of that Usually has yeah. had to do with the economy or with? I mean, have you?
1: Well, the the, the little uh, segment of Silicon Valley I'm in mean, hasn't been very affected by the economy. Um, I mean, we're still seeing very strong revenue growth and traffic growth, and uh, we raised around during the worst part of the recession. Um, so that hasn't really been a problem for okay, us. Okay,
0: so John, same story for you?
2: No, so, uh, <laughs> but but I, I have I have advantages the trip didn't have, and I can tell you that a lot of people are really attracted to working in the medical industry. I mean, it's just something personal, it's philosophical. In fact, I've developed some acquaintances over the last couple of years who are among the most successful people in the world in the electronics world who want to do a medical device startup with me because they really believe in the idea of, of medicine. They want to be close to patients, uh, taking care of patients. And there's very few things as rewarding as seeing someone get treated with your particular instrument, your device that you've worked so hard on. And people are willing to sacrifice a lot for that. That being said, when I was CEO in like 1999, 2000, I mean, in Silicon Valley it was booming, and you just couldn't hire engineers in any capacity, no matter who you were. Um, I had a lot of trouble attracting employees and because everyone was going to go down the street and become a start of some startup, and a year or two later, their options were going to be worth a couple million dollars. But for the most part, healthcare does give you an opportunity to attract quality people that you might not have in other industries.
0: So people who are motivated to really yeah. have an impact on these specific patients. They're really yeah. passionate yeah.
2: about the work they do.
0: Great. Now, it's really... We all know that there's hard work and there's luck, right? There, you can be working really, really, really hard and have just a bunch of bad things that happen to get in your way. Or you can have these incredible lucky breaks. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the lucky breaks that you've had over this time and uh, you know, give us some insights of how they impacted you.
2: Me? Well, yeah. My experience is filled with luck. And I mean, it was just a whole series—you know—some of the worst luck possible in raising money. But outside of that, things happened that would have never—you know, you got to, only divine intervention made this possible, in my view. Is that you know, I came to Silicon Valley. I could have never started this company anywhere else. The way I first got introduced to some of the key components was a patient came in. who was actually completely schizophrenic, but insisted I make a, meet a, a vendor of this key product, and I did it, you know, kind of dumb luck, again, not have any great insight in mine. I mean, the way I raised money, the, the, when I was, could raise money, it was really luck. I mean, persistence, don't get me wrong, persistence was at the root of all of this, but luck is really was just been so fundamental to my individual story. And I didn't have a better context to put it. I used to just call it dumb luck or naivete. I didn't know really how to structure it. But then I listened to Steve Jobs' graduation uh, or commencement talk, and he talks about how, in hindsight, you can connect the dots. And it's so completely true that Accure is completely a story about having been able to connect, connect the dots over the course of my life, going all the way back to when I was uh, you know, 30 years old, 29 years old. I mean, I was doing stuff that I thought was meaningless, but now, in hindsight, it gave me all the substrate to do what I've done over the last 25 years of my life.
0: Would you do it again?
2: I've, uh, <laughs> you know what? Without a doubt, without a doubt, I'd do it again. I mean, the interesting question, if I... Did all this, and I failed, would I do it again? And even in that case, I think I would do it. I think I would do it, even if I failed.
0: So Okay, so Tripp, you've had sort of this lucky star over you since you started this. Are there specific lucky moments that stand out as, boy, if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have been able to get this traction? If that hadn't happened, we hadn't, wouldn't have been able to hire these people? If that hadn't happened?
1: Yeah, when, I um, mean, the time it felt like, we just keep kept getting lucky. I felt like we were just the, the luckiest founders ever um, but I think in in retrospect um, it wasn't really luck. we were just doing things right um, so I think um, the fact that we figured out how to do it right early on, I would say was lucky. Uh, if that makes sense so um, so I think that you know the, the fact that we got so much traction um, and actually had like all this traffic and all this interest within a year of starting to, to work on this kind of stuff um, was lucky. But if we hadn't had that luck, it, we would have figured it out eventually if we just kept trying. But um, I'm going
0: to interrupt you. I'm a huge sure. believer that you make your own luck. Yeah. So, how did you, as someone who knows a little bit about this space, mm-hmm. you know? How did you get so much traction so early on? I mean, I don't know that that's luck. I mean, that was something Mm -hmm. that so many people who start Web 2.0 companies try desperately to build that traffic. What was it that you did that made that happen?
1: Well, we we just did a good job uh, building the initial product and branding it and promoting it. I mean, we were really aggressive in promoting it on blogs and and link filter sites like Dig and Delicious and those sites. Um, So it was really about promotion that made it take off quickly. but I think that anyone can create that kind of traction. It's just that when people start Web 2.0 companies and fail, it's usually that they they do it as a side project for six months. It doesn't work out, and then they quit. Um, I mean, if you work on it full time for five years, I, if you're a smart person, you're actually working hard. I'm pretty sure you will get success. I mean, even some of the founders I know from Y Combinator, who uh, you know three years ago looked like they had no idea what they were doing. They looked like they were going to be complete failures. Um, the ones that was, uh, most of them have quit and gone and gotten jobs, but the ones that have stuck with it, they're starting to get traction and they're all raising money. Um, so it's really just a matter of, of learning. Yeah, yeah, it's persistence, but you need to keep learning along that way. Um, now, one I mean, thing you
0: told me uh, when we were prepping for this interview was that you had, you know, 10 different ideas you were pursuing, mm-hmm. and nine of them you left on the side of the road, and, you know, this is the one you chose to pursue. I mean, what was, how was that decision process?
1: Yeah, so uh, we were just really willing to try different things and and cut our losses. I mean, we, uh, Jared and I spent over a year just trying different uh, website ideas. Some of them we just discussed, some of them we actually built and launched and and tried to grow and then couldn't. And then we were just willing to to try something and then start over. Um, And it was that process of trial and error that really allowed us to understand what was going to work. Um, and I think that, yeah, it was the, the fact that we were able to figure out something was going to work in only um, a year and, and a half, or however long it was, that was probably lucky. But I think if, if anyone just keeps working at it, after a few years you will get some kind of traction.
0: So did you realize you were going through this sort of rapid prototyping process? Was this something you really articulated? I mean, also we've heard speakers like Eric Reese talking about the lean startup and getting things out and testing it. Were you did you articulate this or was this something that just was very natural to you
1: yeah we know what we were doing i mean i I was uh at the time still pretty pessimistic (laughs) you know i was ready to give up and go get a job which i think was the wrong type of thinking uh i mean that was that was a mistake i i would discourage anyone trying to be an entrepreneur from thinking that way because that's that's what what kills you you just need to have faith that if you just keep trying and learning you will get there i mean entrepreneurship is completely a learned skill, it's just, or it's a bunch of skills you have to learn and put together. And, and once you get good at all those skills and you piece them together, you, know, you will be good at uh, you know, coming up with ideas and, and launching websites.
0: So John, looking back over this process, what things would you have done differently? What lessons have you learned through this process? Um,
2: I don't know that i do a lot differently. Not that I didn't make mistakes. Um, but, you know, at the time, the, 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 I, I probably acted rationally based on everything I knew. The biggest issue, the biggest question, and it's one that I continue to ask myself to this very day, is did I do the right, make the right decision stepping down from the CEO position when I did? And uh, it was, it was clearly much of my advice to Tripp was predicated on the specific decision I made. Um, and the reason I did it, though, is, is, is an interesting one and maybe unique to medicine. And that is because I think in medicine, there's basically, there's two types of leadership within a business. There's the leadership that kind of overrides the organization and dictates the product, blah, 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 blah. But you also need inside medicine and outward-looking leadership that kind of influences the medical community. Because you can make uh, the best product in the world, but unless it's kind of it wins acceptance in the medical community, you're not going anywhere. And, and I'd argue that you can see this in some ways even the, in, in Silicon Valley's best-managed company, arguably, is Apple where, as powerful as the products are, we all love Apple products, big part of the strength of Apple is this community of rabid users who really just embrace what Apple comes out with, and when I stepped down from the CEO position, it was to take over that, uh, that influence, the, the position where I was trying to influence the greater medical community. And so that was a big decision on my part, but in doing that I left a lot of power, on the, I gave up a lot of power, and a lot of ability to influence the organization. So it was, in the end, it was very good for the company and for my initial efforts. It may not have been that good for me personally. So was that a mistake or not? It was something I still question to this day.
0: Well, so let's dive into the companies now, right? I mean, we sort of talked about the founding them and these sort of big ideas. But you're not building your company. Are there things that you think about every day, like building the culture? I mean, are you thinking about that as you build the company? Or are you just trying to get the product out the door, and if so, how do you go about doing that, you know, building the internal organization and that culture in the business?
1: Well, I'm, I mean, there's, there's different styles of, of leading a company. And, and I am a very product-focused uh, founder CEO. I, mean, I really believe that if you just make the product good, everything else falls into place. Um, so you know, when I say there's like, lines of people wanting to work for us and lines of and all these investors trying to invest, I mean, I get an email from a venture capitalist like, every two days now asking us if we want money, and we're not even raising money. Um, and the reason why that's true is that we have a good product, and as long as you just keep focusing on a good product, you'll get users, and if you get users, you'll make money, and if you make money, then everyone wants to invest in you and work, work for you. Um, so that, that's my, my attitude, so I'm just focused on that. Um, in terms of building a culture, I personally haven't really thought much about it. Um, everyone tells us we have an amazing culture and they love working at our company. Um, <laughs> perhaps my co-founders thought about this, um, but... You know, I think, I think that, you know, if you uh, have a successful company, you're going to attract good people, and everyone's happy. <laughs> so uh, so my personal attitude is focus on the product, let everything else fall into place.
3: Okay,
0: so the fact is the culture is something that takes care of itself if the company's successful.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you could think about the culture, and, and you could... Uh, I mean, at this point, now that I have some more experience, I have a better idea of what kind of people we look for, and I, I look for culture fits, and, you know, I might even hire someone even if they're, you know, they have a worse resume, but I think they're a really good culture fit, I'm more likely to hire them. But I think that that's of secondary importance to just building a good product.
2: I agree yeah. with Trip completely. I think you can maybe tweak culture at the margins, but ultimately the culture stems from your belief in the product and your core mission. And the, the one difference again with, with my particular business is that it's a very outward facing. I mean, you can make the best product in the world again, but unless the docs embrace it and actually learn to use it. I mean, I equate the cyber knife to like a Stradivarius, you know, you're going to make the best violin in the world, but unless you have Isaac Perlman or someone to kind of play the thing, you, you know, you're never going to know what it's capable of. So you really have to develop, including your culture, the physician community, and that was kind of my major contribution of the last five or six years to accurate.
0: So. It's interesting how many parallels there are. I mean, you'd sort of say, "Boy, this is almost the exact same parallel experience, except that you had a much harder time, John, you know, sort of raising money and getting traction." But you know, besides that, it sounds like there's you know very parallel. I'm curious. Here we have this highly regulated, high technology, capital-intensive business, and here we have this Web 2.0, wild west type of environment. I mean, what are the biggest differences do you see in these uh, in these experiences?
1: well i think uh, I mean I think that that my dad really uh you know he uh the, the the first step he had to get to was was a much bigger step than we had to get to i mean our our first step was building a website that let people upload a PDF word file, PowerPoint, and then showing it on the web in flash i mean that was our first step, and that was basically it took three people to get there um and you know we did that well and then and then from there we, we iterate we um, and, you know, we raise a few million dollars, and then from there we build more features and attract more people. And it, it really has been going like one step at a time uh, to go from, from nothing to 40 people and eventually to thousands of people we're going. Where I think my dad had to get to the one really, take one really big leap forward uh, to really get to a point where he could show any signs of success. Do you agree with
2: that? Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. I'm accurate was just a much, much more complex business. I mean, I, you know, as CEO, I had to learn about things like, you know, quality assurance. What do I know about quality assurance? I didn't even know what the word meant. Uh, quality systems. I mean, how do you know about uh, the FDA regulation? Not just the FDA, you got to know about the French regulatory processes. And then you've got to get into, you know, different specialty organizations, which think differently. Neurosurgeons hate radiation oncologists. Radiation oncologists hate neurosurgeons. Uh, and uh, this is the world you kind of waded into. Uh, much less just figuring out how to make something from an engineering perspective, from a software and hardware perspective, which was complex in its own right. So it was a very complex business and uh, gave me as a CEO a lot of chance to learn a lot of different things. So it was exciting, but I can't, you know, Trip and I, we've, in this way, we're very different, we're in parallel universes. I don't know that we've, the nature of our business has much, that much in common other than trying to make a good product.
0: Was there a big benefit being a neurosurgeon doing this? I mean, could someone have been an engineer, step into the same role? No. Or how, how much did your background with a domain expertise, um, you know, when actually having a practice, uh, allow you to do this?
2: Uh, I think there is, uh, was, was vital. Uh, I mean, the reality is that uh, you, as an engineer, you just don't have Uh, You can't inspire the same measure of confidence in the the medical community as you can if you're a physician. And in fact, not only that, I was out there in the front lines putting my own patients' necks on the line. Uh, And my patients, I might add, were there putting their necks on the line. But the fact that you had that measure of confidence in the product on my part meant a lot to prospective customers and to prospective patients. And I just don't think engineers would be in the same position, so that's what's unique about a medical company.
0: So I want to ask one last question to you before I open it up to Steve and his class, and then the rest of you. So you, know, you can start thinking about questions that you'd like to ask. Is that what advice? I mean, here we have a room full of prospective entrepreneurs. In fact, many of them might have already started their own companies. Um, what advice do you wish you had gotten, and what guidance you know, would you give to them as they look ahead to, to this path? Besides yeah. not giving up the CEO spot.
1: I mean, <laughs> I mean my, my advice is to just to really go for it. Um I mean the way you're gonna learn is through just trying it and then you're failing or succeeding. And um you know that's that's where you're gonna learn. So that's you should just, just basically go for it. Um I mean classes like this are are great, but they're really not gonna be that helpful unless you're also working on something at the same time. Um I mean really I would say you're going to learn while you're on the job, and then you know, reading books on business and going to class like this are just going to give you things to think about while you're on the job. So I would encourage you to just move forward. Uh, you know, don't be too afraid of, of failure. Don't be too afraid of having like, a year on your resume where you didn't do anything. Um, I mean, that seems to be how most, you know, at least at Harvard, how everyone was. Um, and I just wouldn't, wouldn't be afraid of that. Just, just go for it, and, and you will start learning quickly.
0: Okay, so basically, just in time learning along the way, just sort of as you dive in and you have a problem to solve, figure it out on the fly. Yeah. Okay. That's what you're saying. Okay,
2: John. What do you think? I mean, I agree. Their Stanford students are smart, right? They can learn. Um, But I I think that uh, once again, my son is right. Um, Always. uh, (laughs) Don't be. I mean, this. It seems very intimidating, and the worst thing you can do is be intimidated. And so I think you need to listen carefully before you kind of jump in. But uh, after a certain measure of listening, I mean, it calls for uh, decisions and bold action. And then don't look back. Do not look back. Just keep going forward. And uh, if, if you are bold enough, if you have that intrepid conviction to go forward, chances are, and I agree with Chip, chances are you're going to succeed. It may not be. Not everyone's going to produce a Google or a Microsoft or something, but you may produce a, a meaningful business, and that's, in the end, all that really matters. So I'd say go for it, and one other thing is there are no rules. There are no rules, and that's the scariest thing for a lot of entrepreneurs to understand. I mean, you kind of, well, what am I supposed to do? You can do whatever the hell you want, and you've got to keep reminding yourself. So there are no benchmarks. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay, because out of the fact that there are no rules come great opportunities. And I think, Tina, one of your classes has shown that. So, don't forget, there are no rules and go for it.
0: Okay, I'm going to open up for Steve.
3: Thanks, uh, Tina. So, I'm Steve Blank. I teach uh, uh, 278, The Spirit of Entrepreneurship, the class that wraps around uh, the ETL lectures. And uh, our students are actually going to go and try to deconstruct these two businesses uh, uh, after uh, after class. So, Tripp, the first question is for you. Um, one of the nice things that entrepreneurs do um, after they're successful is reinvent history. So I'm going to ask you to roll back history a bit and try to remember when you started script. Did you have a business model in mind, or was it get the product out, or did you have some plan to make money? What were you thinking, if you could remember when you guys got the first version up, what was in your head?
1: Yeah, the, the, the and we, we had thought about money, we had uh, a list of ideas for how to make money, but really the challenge was getting users. Um, I mean, it's, it's the, the hardest challenge in a consumer web startup is, is getting users, especially a lot of users. Uh, there's a lot of these companies that uh... you know are started by you know the you know flawless teams of executives from big companies and they have like seventy million dollars and they have an amazing business model in mind but then they launch their product and nobody actually uses it um, so i mean our, our goal is just to build this thing and get people using it and then just iterate from there and um, that's what we did
3: and so just following up if i can so take us from your original i think it was called youtube for documents yeah. strategy till now, take us through the pivots or the changes mm-hmm. in your user or moneti- uh, monetization strategies as you've gotten older, wiser, smarter, more users. What, what have you learned? What's changed?
1: Yeah, well, we you know, we call ourselves the YouTube of documents at first, which was a great way just to get uh... get, get, get you know, people talking about us. It. So it was a much, just the easiest way to explain it. And uh, we're now, we, we don't like to think of ourselves that way. Um, I mean, at our core, that's basically what we still are. We're a way people to Take a PDF file, a Word file, a PowerPoint file, upload it to the web, and share it with people. Um, but you know, since then we've transformed into um, like that that same thing plus a bigger vision, which is to basically change publishing. You know, we want to make it so that anyone can can become a published author. Um, so basically, that means taking what we had before, but adding on more layers. So now people can actually sell written works. Um, you know, we're we're getting making it so you can read. Written works on many different mobile devices. You know, we want people to be able to read anything on Scribd on an iPhone, a Kindle, and all the other 20 e-readers that are coming out. Um, and you know, there's just it, it's it's still the same core idea. There's just a lot more to it, and, and a lot more users can do, and, and a much bigger a bigger vision to it.
3: Great. Well, last quick question for John. Um, John, your your experience as a surgeon versus your experience of entrepreneurship, where anything goes. That's not you know, true when you're opening someone's skull, I assume, and, 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 and therefore the, the learnings you had to do as, a, as an entrepreneur are almost orthogonal, it appears, to the, the ones as a neurosurgeon. What were the biggest surprises as an entrepreneur that were just like, whoa, was it about channel or customers or partners? Or?
2: I, I, I think it was uh, the culture. Uh, because uh, the beauty of an operating room is uh, the, uh, the surgeon's word is God. And a surgeon says something and it, it's done. In fact, my wife likes to complain that when I go home, I pretend that my scrub nurse is always set to pick up, because that's the way life is in the operating room. You're king. Um, and in the rest of the world, you have to persuade. In the business world, you have to persuade your your partners, your employees, your customers that this is the right course of action and this is just taken for granted because you, the surgeons, have spoken. So um, it's been a learning curve for me and not that I couldn't do those things, but I just didn't have time for it initially, but over the years I've learned that that's a very important part of the management process, of the leadership process of an entrepreneurial company.
0: Did that change the way that you uh, act in the operating room? I mean, did, did, was there any sort of, uh, you know, did you, no. did you become a little less draconian in the well, operating but, room after but, having to persuade but, but people to but do business you, But you
2: have, the, you have the wrong image. You have the wrong <laughs> image. In the operating room, it's not like you're uh, Attila the Hun, you know, kind of being a jerk to everybody. No, but it's just that there's, there's not a lot of discussion what the plan of attack is going to be. Everyone turns to you and says, what do we do? And you say, this is where we're going, and there's no questions asked. Even in the face of many people's skepticism in the operating room, people just do it because the, the surgeon has spoken. In the business world, you do something, you haven't bought people, you haven't got people to buy into it. In the background, they're all stabbing your plan in the back. They're doing everything they can to undermine your plan because for some reason they think they have a better plan or they want to embarrass In fact, I think that the, the MBA is a great disadvantage to kind of entering entering the uh, t- engineering techn- uh, engineering business than a technologist such as you're suggesting. Um, that Then again, if, the, if it's going to be a business-oriented like, on the, sort of a new way of... Uh, uh, a new way of, of delivering flowers or something, yeah, maybe a business degree would be better
3: off. What do you think,
1: Chuck? I'd say definitely a technical degree. Uh, I mean, even even if your, your job isn't related to that science you're studying, I mean, it's still really useful to know a science. I mean, I study physics and I, I actually uh, haven't studied any computer science. I don't program at all. But just having studied physics allows me to think very analytically and um, and it allows me to just really think about, you know, how Strip grows and how our users act. And I even use a lot of physics in explaining like the way Strip works. Um, it's just it's much harder to learn a, a technical field than to learn, uh, you know, t- you know, to learn this kind of stuff you learn in like business school. So I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's like you can learn that stuff later later in life. I mean, learning. You know, physics in college or computer science is really, really hard. So if you can do that, you'll be able to learn the business stuff down the road.
0: Great. Okay, next question. Yes. Okay, so the question is: Here you are focused on starting this company. Were there lots of opportunities that were circulating around in your life that you had to eliminate because you needed to focus on this venture?
2: Uh, yes, I mean I think the a successful entrepreneur is very focused, and you do give up many dimensions of your life to go very deep into one area of your life. Uh, you. You try to be a father, you try to fulfill some of your family expectations. In my case, I was a neurosurgeon at the same time, uh, and there wasn't a lot of left over. Uh, And in fact, you know, I I kind of mistrust a lot of people who try to do three entrepreneurial startups at the same time. Uh, Maybe there's some people who could do that, but I think in general, uh, it's you're doomed to failure, and you're best off fixing your, your sights on something that is, you know, manageable and focused all your energy on it and driving only that across the finish line before taking something else on.
0: But you were both acting. I mean you were an acting surgeon and the CEO at the same time or was, not? No. Okay, so why don't we clarify?
2: I was chief medical officer for six, seven, eight years Then I was CEO for three years then I've been chief, basically chief medical officer for about five, six years.
0: And how did this parallel your neurosurgery?
2: When I was chief medical officer I was practicing neurosurgery when I was CEO, I was just uh, just, just a full-time CEO.
0: Okay, next question. Yes, John. Uh,
3: two questions for Trip. One, how does you make money? What's your revenue model? And second, have you had any uh, inquiries from uh, companies who might be potentially interested in acquiring you?
0: Okay, so the question is, uh, Trip, what's your revenue model? What's your business model? And do you have any uh, acquisitions in your future?
1: Um. So about revenue, uh, we have ads on the website, and they're, we get some of the best CPMs on the internet. Uh, the reason is a lot of people on Scribd are searching for things, so we show them ads related to what they're searching for, and then we get really good advertising. And there's other models. We have the script store. It lets people buy and sell content. It lets publishers sell content. And we're about to roll out about five new business models in the next couple quarters. So, um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of things we do to make money. Um, second question, um, yeah, we get acquisition interest all the time. Uh, but you know, we're really just focused on building a big company. Um, so we, you know, we have lots of conversations. We have some biz dev conversations going on with big companies, um, but generally try not to let that distract us too much and just try to build a big company.
0: Cool. Next question. Yes.
2: So I was just curious, uh, when you're initially starting, how do you sort of dealt with conversation for your employees, particularly with respect to equity? I mean, I just like that's kind of an awkward, awkward conversation, or it could be, and I was curious how you handled that and how it actually played out.
0: So the question is, how do you deal with compensation for your early employees related to salary and equity?
1: Well, uh, pre-raising funding, it was, um, it was just, there was no salary, it was just equity. Um, and yeah, it's a pretty awkward conversation you have to have with your co-founders. Um, in general, I believe in splitting it as evenly as possible. Um, that way you'll have a much better relationship down the road um, and make sure, make sure everyone is equally motivated. Um, so that's my advice on that. And then, and then once you raise, um, raise money, then you can start paying people salaries. And we just paid market rates.
2: Can I, can I recommend that? Make sure you know, though, who you're giving all this equity away to. I mean, the, the beauty of Trip startup is Trip knew very, very well who his senior partner was going into this. And so he, could, he believed in and trust him. There's nothing more painful than to give a good dollop, big, huge dollop of founder's equity to somebody who's a complete dud. And that can destroy your company at some point in the future.
0: So, John, why don't you answer that question, too? A bit. How did you deal with equity and salaries early on?
2: Um, very naively. I mean, the, the reality was that I was the heart and soul and energy and vision for the whole company, but I was young and Dell was surrounded by guys who were all 20 years older than me, and I figured, well, they must know a lot because they're older than me, and so they end up getting a disproportionate amount of the equity. And, and, uh, and in the end, though, the only one stuck doing the work was me. So I didn't have the equity, but I was most committed to the project. But of course, Acura was, we ended up having a washout round, and you know, so it was, it was a business long and difficult financing history. It made some of those early equity grants kind of irrelevant. Um, but I do think for many of you guys who are thinking about maybe a Web 2.0 startup with you know, some friends or with a small group of people, you know, Tripp's uh, experience is really very relevant to what you might be thinking about in the future. Next question. Yep.
3: Uh, so this is for Tripp. Uh, you said that most of the advice you get nowadays is from other entrepreneurs, CEOs, people who have started companies that have gotten this script size and have gone larger. I was wondering what's the best advice you've received from them in that order to grow larger than going
0: now? So the question was, uh, you mentioned, Tripp, that you get a lot of advice or the only advice from successful CEOs. What's the best advice you've gotten?
1: Um. I don't think that's the best advice, but one of the consistent pieces of advice I get from people at really big companies is to have a vision and to trust your vision and to not sway from that. Because um, as the company gets gets much bigger, um, th- th- it gets really hard to keep everybody somewhat aligned. Um, and you know, everyone has their own sort of plan and direction they want to take things. And um, just really sticking to one vision and, and having a long-term perspective on that, too. I mean, it's really... Easy to let other people uh, influence you. I mean, I, I've really learned to like trust my own instinct over the last few years. I mean, some of the biggest mistakes I made were when other people were um, you were telling me what to do, um, particularly you know older, more experienced people um, with who very good track records, and I just said, "Oh, this person you know is 20 years of experience. They must know what they're talking about." Um, but that's usually when you get, make the biggest mistakes. I mean, ultimately, you need to really follow your own internal vision. You should listen to other people and hear what they say, but in the end, you need to make your own decisions. Let
0: me ask you, both of you are incredibly confident at this point in trusting your gut. Is this something you always have done? Have you always felt as though you've had good judgment? Because you know, there's some people whose judgment is, might not be the same as yours. I mean, is this something that every founder should trust their gut? Or it's just people who have, you know, a good track record.
1: Yeah, I think I've I've gotten much better at trusting my gut. Um, when I was a young college student, I think I was too influenced by everyone else around me, and I, I had to learn through mistakes not to listen to other people. <laughs> you no, know, that sounds weird. Um, but you know, I think that once you start actually like like coming up with your own idea, implementing it, and seeing what happens, you start to. Get a good internal sense of when you're right and when you're wrong, um, and um, and you just get you just get better at it over time.
2: John, what about you? I think what Trip said is is very true, and it's, it's very real. And maybe it took me even longer. I mean, I was very confident in my judgment as a neurosurgeon, but I was uh, far more uh, intimidated by kind of the the big names in the business world who are all these professional managers who wrap decisions in a lot of uh, you know business talk uh, and I shouldn't have been because the end of business is really very simple. Make a product that your customer base really wants and you'll be successful. So i say yes, trust your gut.
1: But it's not that you're, or not that I'm saying I'm smarter than these experienced people telling me what to do. It's just that they, they don't have the same experience that I have and the same view of the company that I have. Um, you know, I, I understand the company better than, than all these people who just like check out the website for an hour and then tell me what to do. Um, so, uh, so it's really just, it's, you know, everyone has to kind of figure it out for themselves and the, the the path they're going down. And even early on, like, if you just trust your instinct, you are going to mostly make mistakes, but you're going to be learning along the way. So pretty soon you will develop a good sense of what to do.
2: I I say it's trust your gut within your area of domain. I mean, I'm not here to tell you whether you should buy electric cars or hybrids or something or diesels or something, you know, but within the realm of my world of neurosurgery, I've come to appreciate that, damn it, I know as much as anybody in the world. No, I know more than anybody else in the world. And in this area, I will have strong opinions. And in this area, this is where my vision is going to prevail. Really good point. Question back there. Uh,
1: So you said... I said the best thing out of it was that there were a lot of other people my age starting companies. So, I mean, one of my dad's biggest problems, as he was saying, is he didn't have a lot of people around him he could talk to. So, Y Combinator kind of feels like like a school for startups. I mean, the same way you guys are in school and you meet all these other your peers, at Y Combinator, you're going to meet a lot of other people starting companies. So, so we actually met our third co founder named Tecon through Y Combinator. He was part of a different company. Um, so, that, that community was the best part. Um, they also give you a lot of really good advice on the really early. Part of a startup, so you know splitting equity with co-founders and um, you know getting incorporated, those kinds of things. I think I pretty much went into Y Combinator having a good sense of all that, probably because of my dad. Um, but you know, if you don't have, if you didn't grow up in Silicon Valley and have that kind of uh, you know people influencing you, Y Combinator is a good thing.
0: Now it's interesting. You mentioned Silicon Valley. Obviously, you went to Harvard. And you came out here. Now, we certainly know some other models of companies where that's happened, people graduating from Harvard and coming out to Silicon Valley. Was that a very conscious decision that if you're going to launch this company, you want to be here?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a combination of this being a better place to be, and also just I didn't like Boston and want to come back to California. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, So yeah, I mean in general, Silicon Valley is a much better place to be to start a company just because there's a much more entrepreneurial mindset around here. I mean, just the, the mindset of, like, Stanford versus Harvard is, is totally different.
0: Well, John, you mentioned you couldn't have done this anywhere else.
2: That's right. And I, mean, I think that, you know, Harvard's filled with brilliant people, and it just kills innovation after innovation. And I think all this – yeah, it, it does. I'm very critical of Harvard. It's got too much money, and it's just it's there to kill innovation. And historically, I think that Stanford has really kicked his butt. And so it's no surprise that some of the, a lot of the, the smart, young, innovative people from Harvard have come out here to this area. Great. It's in the war. Okay, uh, next question. For, for um, along the lines of taking advice, uh, to what extent will you say that you and your co-founders take advice from your users and potential users?
1: Um, I'd say the, that um, we, just like all advice, you take a lot of advice, but in the end, you need to make the decision on where you want to go. Um, I mean, this is kind of uh, Apple's perspective on things. You can't really ask users what they want, because users are going to say, I want a button on this page lets me do this. But if you just take all users' advice, you get a kind of messy product. So you really need to have a vision for where you want to go and just build that, and then tell your users, this is what you're going to use. Um, I mean, you can, you can u- uh, learn from your users. And actually, most of the, the learning comes from analytics, just looking at what people are actually doing. And that influences your decision. But, but in the end, if you listen to your users too much, you build a bad product.
0: Do you find that those users often tell you things that are quite different than what they show they're doing in, their, in the analytics?
1: Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, often the, the users who give you feedback are the most vocal users. And usually the most vocal users are not your typical users. Um, so you have to really be really careful about who you're listening to. I mean, you can easily get in the trap of just listening to your most vocal users, and then you build a product for a really small niche that isn't really a, you know, what the world needs.
0: So, John, let me ask you the same question. I mean, here your users are you know, very, very different, but I'm going to guess you spent a lot of time listening to them. How important was their feedback and their guidance on the product as you were building it?
2: So I feel the same as Trip. I think all products are the same in some respects. I mean, I, I can't have too strong a feeling about how once you do liver surgery... But I do know a lot about surgery, and so uh, at the end, if you love your product enough, you as the innovator, you as the entrepreneur, you will the, the love will show through that product, and in it will be simplicity, and in it will be the effectiveness, and ultimately what your user base wants. So I, I, you know, listen, listen carefully what the world has to say, but in the end, make decisions. And in that sense, neurosurgery is good training.
0: Another question?
2: Yes.
3: In the beginning, did you? Outsource, say, your accounting, your servers, or John, for your parts? Were you doing just in time in the beginning? No. Was everything already out there? So, and the, you just pieced it together to make what you needed?
0: Uh, is this for Trip? Well, actually, for both? The outsourcing, I think, can be used for both. Okay, so the question is uh, how much outsourcing did you do for different services, whether it was accounting or servers, so that you didn't have to bring it in house?
1: We didn't do much, but you know, we were all full time on this, and I was, you know, I, since I didn't go to business school or anything, I didn't know anything about accounting, so it was a good chance for me to learn something about accounting. So I, you know, bought QuickBooks and set it up myself. Um, but in the end, I mean, it doesn't really matter um, whether you outsource those kinds of things or not. I mean, what matters is that you do the, the core part of your business in house. So um, if you're a you know a website, you know that you actually build the product in house. I think is really important. So just don't outsource the core thing you do well.
2: I again I echo what my son has to say. I mean I, uh, you know, I could have never started my business without kind of outsourcing many aspects of it. In fact, you know, some of the major key components were vital to getting the business going. If I had to make those key components, the business would have never gotten started. Uh, so, you know, most of what Accuray was at his onset was a systems integration business, and, and I yes we did outsource accounting for a while, outsource legal, but but the, but the core of the product, which was the software. Uh, And then some of the minor hardware components really were at the heart of what our business was all about.
0: One last question. Yep, back.
2: Oh, I'll take two. Okay.
3: Uh, So, excuse me, one of the things that always seems to be trouble is you come up with a great idea in an early product, and then somebody really big says, yeah, I can do that, too. How do both of you uh, stay
1: ahead of the competition, especially the uh, the big players? The
0: question is, how do you stay ahead of the competition?
1: I think you need to learn to just not uh, pay any attention to the competition. Um, I mean, usually the the best companies are very internally focused, and they're just focused on doing their own thing and not worrying about the big guys. And um, in the end, you'd be surprised how often the small companies beat the the big companies. Um, I mean, usually the big companies have a very different way of thinking about it. So <laughs> I would just ignore what the big companies are doing.
2: Um, I also. Uh think that big companies have kind of a muddled view of where the opportunities lay and, uh, and I'm a big believer in um, uh, Christensen's book The Innovator's Dilemma which talks a lot about how big companies and established companies tend to focus too much on their current customer base trying to keep them happy while a new company and Accuray was very much in this domain is sees a little niche market just outside of where the, the core constituency of the established industry was and does everything to address this little niche market which over time grows and then subsumes the, the original market that, uh, from, uh, which, from which it originally sprung. And so um, I think that if you can kind of see yourself addressing a niche market and I mean focus on the, make that niche market happy, if you make the niche market happy, establish any market, then eventually you can grow from there. So we started with a niche market and we've been growing from that. Great. And last question.
3: Uh, this is for Tripp. I noticed on Scribd uh, you've posted your business plan for $10,000. Um, my question is, have you had a lot of takers on that? And do you think it's worth it for an entrepreneur to buy your business plan for $10,000?
0: Okay, so the question is, you've got your business plan posted on Script for $10,000. Any takers? And uh, how valuable do you really think it is?
1: Yeah, we leave the sales information confidential, so I can't say, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and, yeah, you guys should... Maybe, maybe Stanford should buy it and pass it around. You know, there's no DRM on it. So, <laughs> so you let guys me can... ask you a question. Here.
0: How, If I read that business plan, how close is it to what you're doing now? I mean, we often think of business plans as the best works of fiction because as soon as you get it written down, you know things are changing. The context is changing so fast. Uh, how close is it to what you're doing
1: now? It's, it's surprisingly close, actually. Um, but, you know, in, in the end, it, it doesn't really matter too much. I mean, you know, coming up with a business plan is easy. Actually building the business is much harder. So, I mean, you know, if you're starting a business, I would spend like a weekend writing the business plan and then just like, you know, put it on script for sale for $10,000 and move on. You know?
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, John, let me ask you, was your business,
0: if we looked at your original business plan, how, how different or similar was it to what actually ended up happening?
2: Well. The steps to make the product and to use it in patients and to commercialize were actually you know, not too far off the mark. Um, the time, the scale over which it happened was uh, dramatically changed. I mean, we, everything took, you know, the rule of pi, everything takes 3.14 times as long as your engineers say it will. So, uh, so yeah, it just took much longer.
0: Well, I just want to end by thanking you so much. This was fascinating to see the similarities, the differences. And I have to tell you, I personally am really um, surprised by the number of similarities and uh, really delighted by the fact that you were willing to share all this with us. So thank you okay. very, very much.
2: Wonderful. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Draper Fisher-Jervison Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.